if you've been with us, you know we're doing a series that we're calling Storied, Finding Your Story and God's Story. And to do that, we've been using the Exodus story in the book of Exodus in the Bible. And tonight, we're coming to the place where God has just taken his people through the Red Sea out of Egypt. He has provided manna from the, for them in, in the wilderness. And we're coming to the part in Exodus 20 where God actually gives them the law. And, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. Tonight is more about why did, why did God give us the law? And then next week, we're going to look more specifically at the law that he gave. So first, let's read our passages from Exodus 20. And I'm just going to read all of it for us. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Exodus 20. And I'm reading from the ESV. And God, so he's gathered his people to Mount Sinai. There's thunder. There's darkness. The people have pleaded with Moses, you go talk to God and then come back down and talk to us. And God gathers the people at the foot of Mount Sinai. And here's what he says. He says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. By the way, we're going to talk about this, but that's more than just saying like a cuss word. That's about taking God's name to yourself, calling yourself a Christian. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. In other words, he enjoyed it. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or his iPad or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. Now remember what we said about test you last week. Remember we said to test you is not for you to prove yourself to God, but when God uses that word test, he's talking about showing you what is in your heart. He's showing you to yourself. God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into to this passage. Father, we, um, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you mean for it to be um, sweet, sweeter than honey to our souls. You mean for it to be precious, more precious than any kind of riches. Um, And Lord, I pray that you would let it be that for us tonight. Lord, I pray that you would open your word to us, that we might hear what you are saying to us. Lord, you alone are the only one in in this room who knows exactly where we are. 
who knows all of our hurts, who knows all of our hypocrisies, who knows all of our sin and our struggles, who knows everything we come with tonight. And Lord, we thank you for that because you alone know what exactly what we need to hear. And Lord, I pray for my friends that, and for myself that you would speak the word that we desperately need to hear from you tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if there ever was a week to avoid Facebook, um, last week was definitely one of them. In fact, uh, let me just save you the trip to Facebook tonight. Uh, Just know that your Uncle Gary, who has equally copious amounts of handguns and American flags, uh, believes that it's not Adam and Eve, but it's Adam and Steve. And your cousin Ashley, who has been to 10 Bonnaroo's in her life, who thinks she's changed the world, she's solved hunger and injustice through the simple changing of her profile pic, She's defriended Uncle Gary. Um, Uncle, uh, yeah. And what's interesting is you think about, I don't know what your interactions were like. I had to kind of walk away from Facebook last week. Uh, But if you had any notions that living the Christian life in the 21st century and being a gospel-centered Christian was going to be easy, I kind of hope that last week disabused you of that a little bit. It is by no means easy to walk in this world as a gospel-centered Christian. And as I've I kind of been thinking and praying about, as you know, the hot topic, gay marriage, and, and tonight is by no means going to be about that. But as I've been thinking and wrestling through my own understanding of how we as gospel-centered Christians relate to the world around us, I kind of had this epiphany yesterday. So I was jogging. And by jogging, I mean I was walking. <laughs> and by walking, I mean I was eating donuts. <laughs> That's not true. I've been fair to my fast so far. Uh, But here was the thought as I was walking (laughs) that I had, and it was simply this. Sammy, there are kind of two things you need to understand about God and the way he thinks about everything. On the one hand, God is much less shocked. He's much less shocked by sin than you and I are. Like, he sort of kind of knows the deal. Like, remember that time when he looked out at humanity and he, like, flooded the world because he was so sad at what he saw? Like, he kind of knows the deal. On the one hand, he's less shocked. But on the other hand, and this is what I need to hear, and maybe some of you need to hear it, he's much more offended by sin than I am. He's much less shocked by it. In fact, Francis Schaeffer, if you know him, used to say that shock should not even be in the Christian vocabulary because we so understand sin. He's much less shocked by it, but he's also much more offended by it than I am. And so it's interesting, as I've been thinking about that, you know, I think this is the perfect way to think about as we come to think about the law and why God gave us the law, and why God took his people to Mount Sinai and said, here is the way that I want you to live before me. Uh, In other words, so God, here he is, he's gathered his people to Mount Sinai. Let's just walk through the story a little bit tonight. So here's the picture, he's he's gathered them in what is the most epic mountain weekend ever, (laughs) sort of like like to think about it like that. He's brought them to Mount Sinai, and he wants to give them something, something that they desperately need, and something that he desperately wants to give them. And what's interesting, though, is when you and I think about the law, here's what's fascinating. is He gives it to him. You literally know it. He engraves it on stones. But what's fascinating is, is it's, not, it's not like this is the first time they've ever heard these things before. In some ways, when you think about the Ten Commandments, what we call it is basically a summary of what we call the moral law or the natural law. And what you have to see as we kind of get into this is God, he, he, he engraved on stone what was already engraved on, on all of their hearts and is already engraved in every human being's heart. Being made by God for God. 
And so it's interesting. So there's a sense in which the law he gives is intuitively in us, which is why with my kids, when like one of them bites their other's legs, like they don't have to, like they kind of know that's wrong. Like this sort of intuitively they know, I bit my sister's leg, I probably should run from dad. They sort of know that. But it's also important for me to tell them that. So they kind of know it, but it's also important for them to hear it. And that's exactly where we are because God's law is written in our hearts, but we also need to see it. And that's what God's saying. He's saying there's part of you that knows this. It's engraved on your heart. But you also need to see it. You need to be reminded of it. It needs to be written down for you so that you won't ever forget it. And so he says, I'm going to write this in stone and put it before your eyes so you know what it's like to live before me. But that's the question this passage actually begs us to ask, right? So why did he give it that? So here's what we call the, the summary of the moral law. The heart of what it means to be a human being in fellowship with God. He gives it to us. But why? And I think there are a couple things you've got to see. And here's the first one. That he actually gives it to us so that we can understand who we are. God, part of why gives us, God gives us the law is that so you and I know who we are. Made by God for God. Now, here's what's interesting when we come to think about even these laws specifically. So the problem that I typically have when we talk about God's law is simply this. That if you and I are being very honest, as you look at these laws and as you look at the Old Testament, two things are going on for you. On the one hand, you look at these laws and at, at least you think they're arbitrary. You think some of these laws just seem so arbitrary. Or if they're not arbitrary, you think, a lot of you think, they're restrictive. So on the one hand, why in the world does God want us to do that? Arbitrary. On the other hand, why would God want me to not do that? Restrictive. And that's how you tend to think about God's laws. It's something that's either I don't understand why I should do what I want to do, or I want to do something else, and God's trying to kill my party. Right? God is sort of the cosmic killjoy. He's like the guy that like walks into the party. He's like, shut it down, shut it down. Right? That's the way a lot of you think about God. This is part of why I love doing college ministry. Part of why I love college ministry is I get to process your parents with you for the first time. And that is both awesome and terrible at the same time. I love, this is the first place for you. This is why college in some ways is so important. This is the first place for you where you begin to process the way your parents raised you. And my favorite conversation to have with students is this one. Is it actually comes from a passage in a book by a guy named Dan Allender, who I love. He's a Christian counselor. And he's got this book called How Children Raise Parents. And he says this about human beings. He says, every human being, everyone in this room was born, I was born, you were born, asking two questions. You ready for them? Am I loved? And can I get my own way? Am I loved? And can I get my own way? And your parents answered those, those they, your parents answered both of those questions, but they answered them in four ways. Track with me a little bit. Let's do a little bit. This is fun because I have a point. So, so four ways your parents answered these questions. Am I loved? Can I have my way? Here's the first. Some of your parents answered it like this. Yes, you're loved. And yes, you can have your own way. So in other words, these are the parents who are less parents and more friends. This is, this is why I love Mean Girls. I love Amy Poehler's uh, character in Mean Girls. And she's like, hey, guys. And she's got the, like, the little belly button piercing. She's like, let's party. And they're like, mom, this is weird. You're my mom. And a lot of you can relate to that. Like You long for your parent to be less your friend and more your parent. Uh, and you can actually, your college is the place where you begin to see, like, oh, I'm kind of messed up. Maybe it's because my parents never told me no, right? Like, they tried too hard to be my friend and not my parent. So that's something, yes, you're loved. Yes, you can have your own. But here's option two. Some of your parents said this. No, you're not loved. And yes, you can have your own way. 
So for, the, for these parents, as you think about yourself, these are the parents who either through a job or through an addiction, just they could not give themselves to you and they did not give themselves to you, but they gave themselves to something else. So by the time they got home to deal with you, they're like, just do whatever you want. You want to watch 63 episodes of you know, Phineas and Ferb and Netflix? Go for it. I am exhausted. I don't want to deal with you, right? So it's no, you're not loved, but yes, you can get your own way. Option number three, and this one breaks my heart because this is, this is a lot of you. Um, so especially if you grew up in the Presbyterian church, PCA or ARP, listen to this one. No, you're not loved, and no, you can't get your own way. You can't have your own way. No, you're not loved, and no, you cannot have your own way. This is so many parents in our circles. Um, if you, here's a way, how do you know that was your parents? If you can't remember ever laughing with your parents... That's kind of a sign. If your parents always told you no more than they ever told you yes, that's kind of a sign. And a lot of you grew up, and that's why some of you came to college and you were like, thank the Lord for college, and you go like crazy wild. Part of that's because you've had no, no parents. It sounds weird, but you know what I'm saying. And here's option four. Yes, you're loved, and no, you can't have your own way. And this is what Allender says. This is, the, this is the kind of parent that God is. Yes, you are deeply, deeply, deeply more loved than you could possibly imagine. And no, you cannot have your own way because you're dumb. You are so... Like, Scripture compares us to sheep. We talk about this a lot. Sheep are so dumb. So dumb. You're dumb. I, you know, I mean, like, some of you are very, very smart. I get that. You got, like, I've got the Capstone Scholarship. Fair enough. Great. Go you. But you're still spiritually dumb. Spiritually speaking, you are dumber than dumb. And you make all kinds of selfish, stupid mistakes. And so God is not afraid because he loves you to tell you no. And that's actually one of the first ways you've got to think about back to the first way that why God gave us the law. This is the first thing you've got to get. He actually gives us the law. He gives us these laws because he loves us. Because he wants us to know who we are because he's not afraid to tell us no. Um, think about it like this. They're, they're sort of so, and in some ways, think about it like this. The law is for our own sake to tell us who we are, how to be free, and how to best flourish as human beings. The law is for us to tell us who we are, how we can be free, and how to best flourish as human beings. In other words, the law is supposed to remind you of who you are, that you were made by God for God and you've got limits. And life goes best when you, when you live with him in his way. Think about uh, two sort of different illustrations of this that help me as I think about it. Here's the first one. There's this, prof- this is a true story. There's a professor who was giving a lecture uh, to students about freedom. And he had an, like an illustration. He brought this little fish, goldfish, and a fishbowl with him. And he put the fishbowl on the stage and he showed the students the goldfish swimming around in the little fishbowl. And he said, okay, is this fish free? And the students said, no, he's not free. He's in this little tiny goldfish bowl. So he took the goldfish and he put it into like a bigger aquarium and the fish was swimming around the slightly bigger aquarium and he asked, is this fish free? And the student said, no, he's not free. He's still contained in this aquarium. So he took the goldfish and he put them in this giant tank and had like all these other fish in there, friendly fish. They were swimming together in this giant tank and he said, is this fish free? And they said, no, he's not free. So he took the fish and he put the fish on the stage. And he said, is this fish free? And they all watched the fish as it floundered and floundered and floundered and then died. Here's option two. Illustration two. 
So every year uh, we go to the summer conference. We've talked a lot about it. By the way, if you have questions about scholarships, please talk to me. But every year, part of why I love going to summer conference is there's the best donuts in the world there. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, it's called T- Thomas's Donut Shack. I-, I love, I'm a huge fan of cinnamon sugar donuts, and um, not many people make these anymore. Krispy Kreme used to make amazing ones, but they stopped. I don't know why. But anyways, Thomas's Donut Shack has the best in the world. And so every year, like a couple times in the week, probably like three or four times in the week, we take the family to get donuts. And... Um, but sometimes what happens is it gets so crowded. It's this tiny little, it literally is a shack, and it gets so crowded with cars, you've got to park across the, the street. And literally, it's not a street, it's actually a highway. And it's actually a pretty busy highway, and cars move pretty fast. So we've got a rule with our kids when we park the car to go to Thomas's Donut Shack. And the rule is simply this you can't cross the street unless you're holding an adult's hand. So whether that's me or mom or a student that's with us, you have to hold an adult's hand. Now, why do we have that rule? Because I hate my kids. And I'm a desperate control freak. It's because I love my kids. And I want my kids to have donuts. I want my kids to have donuts. <laughs> I do. I mean, I really do. Um, and that's, you have to understand, like, as we come to think, why did God give the law? You can't, if you understand anything about the Bible and who God is, you, you can't have this idea that God's sort of just arbitrary or he's just, like, overly demanding or he just loves to say no. Um, that's just not who God is. Um, so when you come, think about this one. So probably when, when we read the, the Ten Commandments, the seventh one, for a lot of us, especially guys, is the one that jumps out because, okay, God says, you shall not commit adultery. And we're like, okay, got that one down. Most of us aren't married. Cool. Then Jesus says, nope. Actually, when I say adultery, I really mean, let's boil it down to lusting in your heart after anyone who's not your spouse, you're not married to. So, like, maybe that this past weekend when you were, like, having that make-out session, that probably counts, right? Like, that probably counts as breaking the seventh commandment. Any, any sort of lust coming out of this is what Jesus said breaks it. Now, you can think about it, like, okay, so what's up with God and sex? Does he just love to tell us no? No. Think about it this way. Jesus, it was his idea. Like, sex was his thing, right? That might sound weird to you, but, like, like, I was like, you know, I mean, like, literally, the Bible says Adam and Eve were naked, and it was good, it was good, and God was there, like, I was there. That might be weird to you, but, like, he was there, and it was like, this is good, I made, this was my idea, right? But, he, lo- so he wants you to enjoy sex, but he doesn't want you to do it in a way that shames you or enslaves you, which he says... Anytime you do it outside of the marriage covenant, it does. We could talk a little more about that why. We talk more why. Partly because when you, I mean, let's do the brief example. Sex is, you know, I mean, sex is more than just something physical happening. You're making promises. When you, when you enter into your prom, you're saying, I am yours, you are mine, we promise to be with each other and support each other. And guess what? If you're not married, you can't keep those promises. Because you're not doing with your life what you're doing with your body. Does that make sense? Yeah. In other words, for sex to be good and free and joy, as joyful as God meant it to be, you've got to do with your life what you're doing with your body. And that's why for a lot of you, like you, some of you know, like you know this, you're like, I could testify right now. It would be awkward, but I could tell you about how this happened and it was not good for this relationship. Why? Because we were not doing it with our lives what we were doing with our bodies. We could talk more about that. But he, he, he wants you to enjoy it in a way that doesn't shame you or enslave you. Uh, but God's law is meant to do more than just tell us who we are and how we're supposed to live. Here's the, the second thing you've got to understand about his law is that he actually, his law is also meant to tell the world what he is like 
and what he wants the world to be like. Okay, let me unpack that for a second. So in other words, God's law is about his image, who he is and what he's like, and what he wa- his, his vision for the world. Vision's a big word. Like sometimes supporters will be like, Sammy, what's your vision for RUF? I hate that. It's like I hate the hobby question. Do you hate it when someone's like, hey, what are your hobbies? Maybe if you like kayak and stuff, you're like, oh, well, let's talk about my hobbies. But for me, I'm like, Netflix? Um, is that a hobby? Uh, food? Is food a hobby? So I hate, but I also hate, what's your vision? I, I don't know. I mean, I have one, but sometimes harder. But okay, this is, think about it like this. God's law is his vision of who he is. And it's his vision for the flourishing of humanity. It's his vision for the world. Um, and that's the second thing you've you kind of got to get. So that means that part of the Christian narrative, part of the Christian story is this. It's pretty simple. You heard it in Sunday school. But that you and I were made in God's image. And what that means is we were made to sort of reflect God. We were made to, re- like a mirror, we were made to reflect God to the world around us. To say to the world, this is what God is like. And so N.T. Wright's got this fascinating place where he says, part of what, part of the best, one of the best ways to think about sin is that why God takes it so seriously and it's so offensive to him is when you and I sin, we're actually saying, this is what God is like, but he's not what he's like. So when you and I sin, we're saying, this is not what God's like. Do you see that? So when you're, when you lust, you're saying, this is not what God's like. When you lie, you're saying, this is not what God's like. When you are full of, when you are proud, you're saying this is not what God's like, and that's and that's why part of why God takes it so you know so seriously. Um, but it not only undermines sin, not only is it undermines what God is like, but it also undermines what He wants the world to be like. It also undermines His vision for the world. Uh, I deeply remember the first time this ever came home to me. Is uh, okay, so for my seniors, you might find a little take a little courage here. Because I graduated at the University of South Carolina as a psychology major with no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to do that. <laughs> That's about all I knew. And so I just graduated, moved back to Sumter, South Carolina, moved in with my parents. Literally, my mom had to kick me, <laughs> she had to, like, kick me out of the house because I was such a homebody. This is, I'm not like a exa- shining example of courage and maturity. But while I was there, the, so I was trying to figure out one, what I wanted to do. But while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I was working in landscaping, which might shock some of you. Landscaping is actually the best job I ever worked because when you do like a day of landscaping, you get to see the tangible results of your work, which is incredible and not at all like ministry. So you're like, you know, I, I never get to see, rarely do I get to see any tangible results in my work. So I love landscaping to the point where I was engaged to my wife and I thought this is what I want to do. Like I really remember going to my boss and be like, hey, do you think it's possible for me to like run a crew here? And he was just like, hmm. <laughs> he was like, ooh, you are a good worker. Good job, you. Good job, big guy. But no, because you're not called to this, which was helpful. Um, and so here I am. And uh, anyways, so. <laughs> not like, do ministry if you can't do anything else. That's not what I'm saying. Um, so, but when I was working there, I saw something that I couldn't put into words until now, but that it was like seeing what, what God did not want the world to be like. Because my boss, was, he owned this landscaping company, he uh, was a big Christian in the community. I, I don't know if he's a Christian. I, I think he was a Christian. I don't know. Like he, he had like this very like man of God, like, you know, scripture all around the, the landscaping lot. Like people knew he was a Christian. But the thing that was messed up is the way he made his money, and he made a lot of money, and the way he made his money was he would hire these illegal immigrants 
and he would pay them less than minimum wage. And, and because he paid them less than minimum wage, they would go to him all the time for loans, which he would give them at interest. I'm pretty sure when Jesus said we should care for the least of these, he meant the opposite of that guy, right? Like, don't do that. Um, and it came home to me that when you and I are not like what God is like to one another, the world will never be like it's supposed to be. Do you see that? When you and I are not like what God is like to one another, the world will never be like it should be. Uh, No one put this better than Fyodor Dostoevsky. If you were to ask anybody, any English person, who were top novelists of all time, Fyodor Dostoevsky would be on everybody's short list. He was a 19th century Russian author. And for me, his short stories were where the money's at. And so he's got this short story called The Dream of a Ridiculous Man. And the story basically goes like this. There's this depressed guy, kind of single guy, selfish human being. He's depressed. He's decided he doesn't want to live anymore. So he's made this plan. When he gets back to his apartment, he's got a gun in his apartment. He's going to kill himself. And as he's heading back in the streets of Russia to his apartment, this three-year-old little girl comes running up to him. And she's crying. And he's trying to make out through her broken sobs what she's saying. And as as she grabs, she's hugging him. She's asking him for something. She's crying. And he finally makes out that she's looking for her mom. And instead of helping the little girl find her mom, he kind of pushes her aside. And he goes to his apartment. And he's about to kill himself. And as he's about to kill himself, he has his daydream. And in the daydream, something fascinating happens. In the daydream, he goes back to this world. And it is a perfect world. It is like the Garden of Eden before sin. Everyone in this world is loving each other. They're treating each other exactly perfectly as they should be. But then something tragic happens. As he begins lying to the people in this world. And then he begins teaching the people in this world to lie to each other. And then listen to the way Dostoevsky describes the fall of, the, uh, the fall of this world. He says like this. He says, each of them began to, I love this line, each of them began to love himself better than anyone else. And indeed, they could not do otherwise. Every one of them became so jealous of his own personality that he strove with might and main to belittle and humble it in others. And therein he saw the whole purpose of his life. In other words, another way of saying it is they were becoming fundamentally unlike God. Because if you know anything about him, you cannot say selfish and you cannot say all about himself because God, as we're going to see, is absolutely the heart of what it means to love and be selfless. And which, this brings me to the last thing I want you to see about the law and why God gives us the law. So first, he kind of gives it to us so that you and I, to tell us who we are, he gives it to us to tell the world what he wants it to be and what he's like. And then lastly, he gives it to us to tell us what he is like for us. Who he is for us. People that belong to him. And what's interesting, if you caught it in this passage, I don't know if you were catching it, but what's fascinating is before God gives them the law, he tells them a story. Did you catch that? If you go back and look at the beginning of the the top of 20, he literally tells them a story. And it's the story of how he redeemed them from from Egypt. It's the story about how he brought them out of the grips of death and brought them into his own presence and life with himself. And that's so important because God, you can, I'm going to read it through the lines. He's saying, never, never, never forget this. I loved you before I gave you the law. I didn't give you the law so that you, you could become worthy of my love. I loved you and saved you before I gave you this way of living before me. And this is so huge to get in the Christian life, y'all. So huge to get. In some ways, this is the greatest struggle of the Christian life. To base your justification... 
which is your position before God, own your sanctification, which is your performance before God. That's what you and I do. We're constantly basing our justification, our standing, our place, how God thinks about us, how God looks at us, own our sanctification, how we're doing, how our day has gone, what our week has been like, how we've done with a a certain sin that we just constantly struggle with. And what you have to understand at the very beginning before God gives the Ten Commandments, he says, listen, that's the raw, if you live in that pattern, you're going to kill yourself. The pattern is you always base your sanctification, your performance before God, on your justification, your standing, because your justification has nothing, it's what Trek talked about, it has nothing to do with you. Whether you were the Israelite who ran through the Red Sea as fast as you could, you're like, what's up, everybody? I knew God was going to save us. Or whether you were the guy who literally, like Trek said, just sort of like nervously walked through. It doesn't matter because God brought you through. It was all about what he did for you. And if you don't base the Christian life on that, it's over. Game over. Because you're constantly going to think God loves you or doesn't love you based on how you're doing. And if you don't understand that he loves you not because you're lovely. He loves you because he loves you. He chose you not because you're choice. He chose you because he chose you. If you don't get that, you'll never know how to live the Christian life. And that's what he's saying at the beginning. He's saying, listen... Let me tell you this story about who I am, about who you are, about how I've saved you. And then let's talk about what it means to live in my presence and live in a way that pleases me. There's a movie, an old movie, that nails this, that is so kind of cheesy if you watch it. But it will always stand the test of time because it's such a parable of the human story. And it's Chariots of Fire. It's actually one of my favorite sports movies. But two men who are Olympic Olympic athletes who run in very, you know, incredible ways. On the one hand, there's Harold Abrams. They're both in Great Britain set in like the 30s and 40s. Harold Abrams is Jewish. He's fast. He runs. He's awesome. And then there's Eric Little, who's Scottish. Uh, Harold Abrams is all about running. Eric Little is about running. He's gifted, but he's thinking about becoming a Scottish missionary. But when they talk about running, they're both incredibly gifted, but they say very different things. So Harold Abrams says this when he talks about the 100-meter dash. He says, when that clock goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Do you hear what he's saying? I've got to find a way to make me be okay with myself. And running is my way of doing that. And then there's Eric Little. You know what he says when he runs? He says, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. Why? Because God doesn't love him based on his running. I don't know how you're doing that, but you are. You're trying to justify yourself, and it's killing you. Instead of resting in what God has already done to justify you through Christ. This is exactly Paul's story. If you remember the Apostle Paul, when he begins to talk about the Ten Commandments, remember when he says, he's like, listen guys, I really thought I was the Ryan Gosling of the Pharisees. Perfect in every way. He is perfect in every way. Until I got to the Tenth Commandment. And God said, the law said to me, you shall not covet. Why did that one undo Paul? Because until the Tenth Commandment is a clue for us. The Tenth Commandment is saying, listen, you guys all think this is about outward stuff. No. It includes outward stuff, but this is about your heart. And Paul came to see through not you shall not covet. Because covet is not an outward thing, right? Like you would have no idea if I'm coveting. Like I could totally be coveting your shirt right now. Or I could, for guys, not girls. I could, co- I could totally be coveting your life. And you would have no idea. And Paul says, that's the one that undid me. Why? Because God looks upon my heart and the ways that I... Because here's the reality for you, for me, and for Paul. On our best day where we're keeping the law, we're keeping because we don't want to look bad. 
That's why you go to church and you look nice. I mean, you don't want to be the guy that didn't go to church. Your friend's like, oh, he didn't go to church today, you know. And Paul says, the tenth one, it undid me. Because the commandments are much, much deeper. I love the way Herman Melville said it. This is what the law, so what the law does. This is why it shows us who God is for us. is because it shows us our need for God. If you don't get anything else tonight, this is what I want you to get. Is God gave us the law to show us that we need him. God gave us the law, when we said in our passage, to test us. Remember what, remember what we said last week? To test us, meaning to show you, God gave you the law to show you what is in yourself. And it is not pretty. And if you think you can look at the Ten Commandments, this is why next week it's going to be so important. If you think you can go through those Ten Commandments and be like, yep, got it. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Woo! Come next week because I'm going to show you that you've broken like all of them today, right? And God gave us the law to show us our need for him. That's why Herman Melville said all of us Presbyterians and pagans alike are dreadfully cracked about the head and desperately in need of mending. And the law tells you that. Another way of saying it is Mount Sinai. You'll never understand Mount Sinai until you understand that Mount Sinai was meant to point you to Mount Calvary. That what's happening at Mount Sinai is meant to show you what is going to happen at a different mountain, Mount Calvary, the mountain where Jesus himself died. And what happened at Mount Calvary? You ever thought about it? Here's what happened. It's the same God who gave us the law. The same, God, the same God who engraved it on your heart and in my heart, he died under the curse of that law. And he died as if he had broken it. And he died as if he had lusted. And he died as if he had lied. And he died as if he had been proud. And he died as if he had been greedy. And he died as if he had stolen. And he died as if he... And Why? For lawbreakers like you and me. That's why when Paul looks at Mount Calvary, he says in my favorite passage of scripture, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So think about it like this. Jesus became lust so that you might become love. Jesus became lies that you might become truth. Jesus became worry that you might become peace. Jesus became Pride that you might become humility. So my suspicion, though, is that like me, most of you look at that and you're trying to climb Mount Sinai. You're trying to say, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to love God with all my heart. I'm going I'm to love him and it's going to be great. And you've never been laid upon the rocks of Mount Calvary. You've never seen Mount Sinai hasn't yet crushed you. It hasn't yet shown you that you desperately need not Mount Sinai, but Mount Calvary. You know, this is why I love, in some ways, um, I love the scene at the end of Lord of the Rings um, that I think actually strangely speaks to exactly what I'm talking about tonight, where Sam and Frodo, they've just thrown the ring into the fire at Mount Doom, and they're laying at the side of Mount Doom, and everything's crashing around, and they're like, think they're going to die. And here's what, uh, what Tolkien says. And it says, and so it was... That Gwaihir, the, the, the eagle, saw them with his keen, far-seeing eyes as down the wild wind he came. And daring the great peril of the skies, he circled in the air. Two small dark figures, forlorn, hand in hand upon a little hill, while the world shook under them and gasped and rivers of fire drew near. And even as he espied them and came swooping down, he saw them fall 
worn out or choked with fumes and heat or stricken down by despair at last, hiding their eyes from death. Side by side they lay in downswept Guahir and in a dream, not knowing what fate had befallen them, the wanderer, Sam and Frodo, were lifted up and borne far away out of the darkness and fire. And my suspicion is that if you were, you would never say this to anybody, but my suspicion is that you long, you long to be swooped up like this. You long to be swooped up and carried to a place where you're made whole. And I long to be swooped up from the rocks where I've crashed myself time and time again trying to justify myself by keeping God's law. And I'm dying and it's not working. And I'm literally laying dying and I need to be swept up by the Spirit of God. This is why this is a perfect picture of salvation. You're lying. You can't do it. It's killing you. And you're swept up by the Spirit of God and you're carried to Mount Calvary where you're made whole. And your wounds are mended. That's why the Puritans used to say that the law takes us by the hand and leads us to Jesus. And we're made whole by him. And we're made new by him. And our wounds are healed by his wounds. And then Jesus in his love takes us back to the law. And he says, understand this. The pattern is not obey this and I accept you. The pattern is you can't be more accepted. You can't be more loved. You can't be more mine. Now run and live in my ways. Run and live in my commandments. I'll close with this. John Bunyan was somebody who really uh, got this, got this struggle, uh, basing your justification and your sanctification instead of basing your sanctification and your justification. And, uh, and he struggled with this, and you can find it in his writings. But Bunyan had this place where he, he wrote this gospel sonnet as a reminder to himself, and as a great reminder to us too. And this is what he said. I'll close with this. He simply wrote this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that your love for us doesn't depend on what we have done or not done. Lord, we know that when we have experienced your love, we care very much about offending you. We care very much about living in a way that's pleasing to you. And yet, Lord, you know that we get mixed up all the time. And Lord, I pray tonight that you would uh, sort us out. You are the great physician. You are the only one that knows the cures that we need. And I pray that you would be at work in us even as we leave from here. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.